Decolonizing the archive, recontextualizing and recreating a past, present and future that includes you. Hello everyone, this is Sam from Decolonizing the Archives. You are tuned into the Grounding Grounding Podcast. Podcast. I'm joined by Connie Bell, Francis Ann Solomon and Nikolai Salcedo. I said it right, right? (laughs) Yeah, you did, you did. Francis Ann Solomon is the writer and director of the biofiction hero story about Ulrich Cross, a man born in Trinidad, who fought in World War II, became highly decorated, but then becomes a key part in the struggles against imperialism on the African continent. Our president Kwame Nkrumah and the people came together to unite Africa. At last, Ghana, your beloved country, is free. Independence came to over a dozen states peaceably, but in the Belgian Congo, freedom was followed by rioting and army mutiny, a reign of terror and disorder. Well, Mr. Bumbutu, things seem to be a bit unstable. This is my country, the Republic of Congo. Go well, Mr. Cross and do big things. Hi Francis, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Before we begin, I just wanted to talk about how the film went last night. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling Connie, thank, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to, to see you both. Um, it was amazing. It was great. I First of all, um, we decided to relaunch it in Peckham for a reason, because I felt, like you said, la- the last screening in Peckham was lit, lit right? Was lit. It was electric. Mm-hmm. Um, the community, it was like being in the pit in, Car- in, in, a, in a cinema in the Caribbean. Yes. It was a real interaction between the audience. So I was really looking forward to it. And this time we went, we bu- they bumped us up to the even bigger cinema. So we had a big 265-seater, 275 actually. And it was almost, well, I'd say like 15 seats were empty. So yeah, people really came to support. At one point, somebody said, um, the moderator said, how many people are seeing it, you know, have seen it before? Mm-hmm. And about, like I'd say 25, 30 people put up their hands. Oh. And I was like, wow, you know, yes. people want to come and they talked about how, you know, they it was necessary to see it again and again in order to get all they did. It was very gratifying. I, I don't want to sound boastful, but it was gratifying to me it's as good. the maker. Because that's what you want, that's you know. Right. That's why you do the work that you do, right? You do it in order for 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 it for audiences, and so when the audiences get it, and they get it, and they get it, and they get it. So yeah. Well, um, in terms of the work that you're doing, Francis, as you know, decolonizing the archive, we had to get you in here at the Black Cultural Archives because we feel very much that your work represents that whole decolonial approach Mm -hmm. to the way people need to start looking at their heritage and the way history has been told. Mm -hmm. And I would like to ask if you were inspired to actually approach it from a decolonial, with the the whole idea of decolonization in your mind, or you just, this was just an organic approach that you- Absolutely. I mean, it's very conscious and deliberate. I, um, you know, I, in South Africa, they call people born after the end of apartheid, the born free. Nice. And I feel like we, well, me, we who were born after independence, yes. you know, after the end of colonial rule in the Caribbean, 
are the born free of our of our yes. location you yes. know and um and yet we're always still um we need to retell that story that's right of how it came to be that we grew up at least i did in a world in Car in trinidad which the leaders were black people they weren't right. white people that all yes. the professions were led by black people mm -hmm. not white people because there was a huge switch like literally overnight yes. the flag came down the flag went up <laughs> and the stroke of midnight in all these territories and from one day to the next the white people who were running things yes. stepped down and were replaced by indigenous um, people and that has changed the way we think about the world but we inherit a lot of that um, you know baggage yes. and we're, con we're still working it out we are working still it out, working, working it, it out. out yeah we're working it out you know um and i feel like we have it's almost like you know when you're in uh, when you're in therapy yes they say you know if you tell the story over and over again every time you tell it you will discover new things yes you will um find new it it, it, it will it will be a healing yes and so i feel like that's what we have to do continually tell and retell this story of ours not that we've told it many times. That's no, the other thing. Well, this it hasn't is it. been told. Yeah. Um, another question that I'm going to approach to you is the fact that also in the whole decolonization approach, cultural memory mm -hmm. is so intrinsic. And I really feel that your film, I would I don't want to say capitalizes, but uses that as a tool to really get the message across. What is our cultural memory as African Caribbean people? Absolutely. You know, and I, I would love you to possibly uh, say a little bit more on the whole idea of cultural memory, especially because it was a part of your memory because you were the one that was, um, you were the young person, I don't say too much for people who haven't seen the film, but you're the person who was filming um, Ulrich when he was not was well, when he was, so. you know, when he was on his way out. You know, that was you, you, that was your memory. So could you tell us a little bit more yeah. that cultural memory kind of? It's right at the center of my work because growing up in the Caribbean, we didn't have any education around who we were, you know, none. I think we saw in my, in my time, we saw there was one day, I kid you not, where we were uh, educated about slavery and we saw pictures of the ships, that was it. Yeah, there was no Caribbean in my time, no Caribbean literature. So, and it also echoed, um, it also echoed um, something in my family and I think in our culture as colonial people, which is an amnesia, an inability That's and right. a reluctance to talk about who we are and what has happened. If something happens, it's just like, we don't talk about that, you know, we really don't. Um, so it was, it's not just political and you know in the larger society it's very personal yes. to me because i grew up not knowing anything about who my parents were or what was going on with them or who my family was who was before my grandfather the family that they had outside of the tiny circle of us and what was happening in the larger society and in order to heal and some people have said that my work is sort of a cross between therapy and um and history nice reclaiming history nice. um, it has always been that um, we have to draw we have to do whatever we have to right. in order to tell our story and in the absence of archive in the absence of documentation um, of, of anybody telling you what it is we have to pull on 
our inner cultural memory, which, and that means, you know, and, and, and by any means necessary, tell our story. And that means half the time that we have to make it up and trust that if I am making up a story yes. about who I am, yes. guess what? It's going to be true. <laughs> the narrative and will it, evolve into truth. It's it true. will evolve into truth and find it's find its find its voice. And I found that so many times. I'm digging, I'm digging, I'm yes. digging, I'm digging, I'm digging. And then and then I tell the story and people are saying, but how can you make that up? And I'm like, I'm telling you, that's what it's it is nice. for me. That's my truth. And then I found out, find out later on that it was true. It was true. That it's all true. There you go. They were the ones who were like in denial, ignorant, had no idea, or they just didn't want me to tell my story. You speak from that genetic space. On that note... I am Nadine Woodley, who's playing Mother in the Windrush Time Capsule, which is an immersive theatre production at Deptford X Festival from the 24th to the 27th of October. How does a woman come to ruin? I used to love reading the stories of Winnie Mandela. Growing up hearing of this mythical-like character who fought for a husband and nation for truth, rights and justice. 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 Well, sod that. That is not my story. Now you may be judging me and thinking, what woman abandons her culture? Her love for her, for her, for her. Along with the stories of my ancestors from the Windrush many years ago. Tickets available on our website, decolonizingthearchive.com. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DE underscore archive. I hope to see you there. So, Nikolai, how was last night for you? Well, I think it was a rather splendid (laughs) On behalf of the audience, sorry. Um, It was, yeah, it was... (laughs) It was really cool. Um, we went to Peckham, and I liked the experience, I guess, because Peckham reminded me so much of back home in Trinidad. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> there's the energy of the people, you know. Uh, I did not get to experience them interacting with the film. But at the same time, just just the outpouring of love that everybody had for for seeing it, and mm. after the Q and A session we had to talk back, you know, that was just really uplifting. Especially since you know it was the first launch, it was the launch of the tour. Yes. So you're kind of going into that yes. with a bit of trepidation. Is this gonna turn out well? And it's the first one. And if this doesn't go well, what's they say about the rest of the tour and all those things? So I guess going there and people, even before seeing the film, walking on the outside, coming in, you know, they just had this feeling of a general excitement. And then after the film, they were like blown away. You know? Wow, that is absolutely amazing. Yeah, so that was great. Thank you very much. Coming back to you, Francis, uh, could you tell me where we can find uh, the screenings for the film? Hero Alric Cross. Dot com. That's our website. We have a big long like schedule at a glance that says, you know, we have screenings going on from literally from Edinburgh right down to Brighton, up and down the country, from side to side, coast to coast to coast. And so all the screenings are listed there and we're adding more every day. So yeah. So one more time for the listeners. Hero Alrickcross.com. That's H-E-R-O-U-L-R-I-C-C-R-O-S-S.com. 
and the film was released on the 22nd of June, which is Windrush Day. And could you speak a bit on why it's important for you to tell across the story and your personal connection? Um, I feel like it was it's important for us as people of color, as black people, as people of African heritage, to tell our story. Um, and many of, many of our stories intersect. For example, a lot of people have told me after seeing the story of Ulrich Cross that they have a personal connection, a relative of theirs, or their father was involved in the African liberation movement, or their auntie went to Trinidad, or they have a relative in Ghana. It was, it was important to me to tell a story, a complete narrative, about about the the journey of Caribbean people in terms of um, that particular moment in time when we when we decolonized um, our own narrative um, and I and so to tell it's a story that I have known all my life because my grandfather was one of the architects of independence in Trinidad and after independence he worked at the United Nations and so I, there were African um, leaders and 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 um you know dignitaries in and out of our house all the time i asked um, what was your father's name my grandfather, grandfather was patrick vincent charles joseph solomon and he was the first um he the first um, um deputy prime minister of trinidad and you know my earliest memories are because like the myth of his role in independence that Eric Williams, who was our first prime minister, approached him because he was a seasoned politician, doctor, island scholar, this tall, good-looking black man, my grandfather, <laughs> right? My grandfather, my role model, approached him to help him to, to, to um, you know, achieve independence. And he came to England, they negotiated with the British, you know, for independence. And then, you know, in all those pictures of, of you know, Eric Williams sitting around the table, you know, negotiating with the white people for independence, at the independence ceremony, welcoming um, Princess Margaret to Trinidad on the eve of independence, Eric Williams looking as the flag came down, the British flag came up. The flag went up, the Trinidad flag went up. My grandfather is standing right beside him the whole time. And that was so much part of my, my folklore um, of my family that independence was in our DNA and so it's a story that has been kind of bursting to come out all my life and in all my in all my um, career you know I've worked for 15 years at the BBC uh, worked my way up from being a production assistant to being an executive producer in drama worked in radio worked in television and I would propose different stories and we say, why can't you tell a story about, you know, the crime in Brixton, you know, or if you don't want to talk about them as criminals, which is sexy fast, we like that, um, then could you please talk, because we're so, we care, we care. They're very downtrodden. Can you tell that story? I kid you not, there was a real pressure to tell certain kinds of stories. And then when I would say, what about the relationship between my grandfather, a doctor and politician, first deputy prime minister of Trinidad, and David Pitt, and how they met at university here in England and created the first socialist um, West Indian political party mm -hmm. and really brought about adult suffrage in the Caribbean. They would say, that's 
not interesting. No. Wow. Oh, yeah. And even when I was making this film, number of people who were just like, not supporting it. Not a good story. Mm. My advice to you is don't make it. Yeah. And Real had to push, you push against that to say, yeah, this is. And so the reactions that we get from our, I can only say community, but it's a global community, whether I screen it here yes. or whether I screen it in New York, Washington, South Africa, Ghana, Trinidad, Toronto. Audiences are just like, boof, I needed that. Yes. I yes. needed that story. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm like, thank you for, for, for validating the decision. So based upon that um, what you just mentioned a while ago, where you were not in, you know, you weren't, you weren't motivated to tell the story. How did you rise above that to make to say, okay, I'm not going to follow that. I'm going to do it. You're not getting the support, and the support could be, I would like you to, could you just let's let's unpack support. So our support could be financial, support could be spaces, resources. How did you get around that? Well, first of all, I didn't tell you why I made the film, how I came to. It was, Alric was a family friend of mine, um, of my family, and um, we had a common friend, Desmond Alam. One day, Desmond called my mother, and uh, he was dying of cancer. And he said, um, he said to my mother, I'm dying, I want you to make a film about Alric Cross. And my mother, for her friend, took this on and raised some money in Trinidad through donations and stuff. And um, took it on like, you know, and I got involved to help her. And I didn't know much about Ulrich. Uh, I began to research him and this story came out, which is really, I wanted to tell. I didn't really want to tell a story about, I knew he had been in the Second World War and stuff. I didn't really want to tell that story um, because I'm not, I had already made a film about black people in the, um, in the British Army and I, I'm over it. Mm. We too can live and die for white people's causes, right? Wow. We can do that. We know this. We know this. Yeah, and they should as well. But that wasn't a story I wanted to tell. Mm. So, but then, as I researched, I I found this this um, independence narrative of him going to Africa, meeting Padmore, Padmore recruiting him wow. to go to Ghana, which is what Padmore was doing on behalf of Nkrumah. He was rounding up people from all over the world to come to Africa to build the United States of Africa. I was like, that's the story I want to tell. That's right. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so that is what kept me going because I got to know those individuals. I got to know Padmore. I did so much research. I would, I, he was born, listen, he was born on the same day as me. My birthday is June the 28th, obviously, and he died three years before I was born. But as far as I'm concerned, I am George Patmore. Yes. I am the re I am I am the vehicle for his yes, story. Yes, yes. I got to love Kwame and Krumah. Why? I just felt he did so much for his country. But mo more than that, there is some there is a piece of footage that moved me deeply, which was when Padmore died. He wanted to be buried in Lapiru Cemetery next to his mother, and Trinidad did not want did not he did not do anything about it. But Nkrumah brought him home to Ghana. And claimed him. And gave him a state funeral. That's right. As, as, a, as a chief, as a dignitary, and buried him at Christian's World Castle. 
And there's footage of Nkrumah at that funeral, at Padmore's funeral, and he is weeping. He is distraught. And that was what I wanted to tell that story of, of, a, of two friends who aim to change the world mm. and how the death of one yes. just devastated the other of course. and made it almost impossible. You know, how yeah. did he go on? Go on. Mm. How do we go on? Mm. You know, that's, mm. so those are the things when people would tell me this is not a story, I'd be like, all right then. <laughs> they can't see the vision. But they also can't. it was divided very, very, very um, starkly on race lines. You know, that it was, white people just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I, I hate to say it, but it's not their story. Or it's, obviously it is their story. Yes. Decolonization yes. is a, a, a European story. Yes. But it's not a story that makes them look good. It's not a story that makes them feel good. No. And it's not a story that they're interested in telling. Because it doesn't... Shine a positive light on them. And that's, that's what they Windrush Time Capsule and African Tales from the Hip. Two plays, one astounding moment in time, October the 24th to October the 27th. Get your tickets early on decolonizingthearchive.com. <laughs> so Hero is filmed across Trinidad, Ghana, the UK and Canada, but you've used archive footage as well. And could you explain a bit about the importance of accessing this material and how it affects how your story is told? In order to tell the story, um, you know, I needed to be able to contextualize the places that we were in, whether it's 1920s Trinidad or 19th, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s England, Europe, or whether it's, um, you know, Africa in the 60s and 70s. You need to be able to see and feel like you were in those places. Um, and, and really, we had a choice. We could have had a multi-million dollar budget and recreate all those period, you know, environments, which would have been impossible and not, you know, like I didn't have a multi-million dollar budget, we had a tiny budget. Or we, you know, which, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a um, necessity. It's a method born of a necessity. But I actually was always in love with the archive. I mean, yes, it's a necessity that you know, yeah, okay, we're gonna find footage of all those places and we're gonna show all those places and we're gonna show our characters in it. And I like to say that my in what my work does is we reclaim history for us and show it from our point of view. So we're so used to seeing, we're used to seeing war footage of Second World War, but you're not used to seeing um, a Trinidadian, you know, um, navigator operating in a mosquito which that that mm -hmm. vehicle changed the course of the British of the, the war it changed the course of the war which which Ulrich explains very eloquently we're used to seeing the scene in 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 Ghana where Nkrumah dressed in his prison garb yes. goes up on the podium and goes freedom you know we, we've seen that at least some of us have if we're lucky but we didn't know that Padma was there. We didn't know that Ulrich was there. We didn't know that Silar was there. We didn't know that Amy Jakes Garvey was there. I didn't know You know, that. we didn't know the Caribbean people were right there. Yes, and how many numbers um, mm. experiencing and, you know, feeling that incredible. And being involved, involved in the process. 
We didn't know that. So it's my, it's part of my journey and my healing and my art, essentially, to reclaim history for us from, you know, tell our stories. But I, but be, like literally I take pride and joy. It's my joy mm. as an artist to cut white people out and put back black people in. Um, I tell you, we know that. We say that one more time. <laughs> cut white people out and put back black people in. Yeah, and it's a kind of a, you know, there's a modernity to it because you take all this old archive, you cut it up, you make it what you want, you put it back together and you stick it together. And, you know, it is its own art. It's it's found well we had to pay a lot of money for it, but it's 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 a way of, of knitting together, gathering the beads of our of our you know, shattered uh narratives and putting them back together by any means necessary. And it's beautiful. I love it. I love it. It's it gives me joy. And people say it's very beautiful. They say that there's a lot of craft and skill and, and beauty in it. But I it's very deliberate and it's very modern and it's the center of my art. So was that access easy though? Did, did you find that the, the actual books and photography? Because I know coming from decolonizing the archive, when we do research, we find that we get more stories. And we said this in, mm -hmm. in Nikolai's interview, we found that we got more information from the people. <laughs> the embodied archive as opposed to the actual dead archive the more sentient was more the sentient archive was more giving than the actual you know dead archive how did you well um yeah the archive the exists in you know reuters bbc um ap you know there are there are repositories of archive um, where footage exists of one kind or another. It became difficult once we were trying to find African footage. Footage, try finding mm -hmm. footage of, of, of Cameroon in, in, in 1966, you know? Like streets and, you know, people's mm -hmm. lives and stuff. Even the Caribbean in before 1940, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to find, because except for tourist footage from oh, a white yes. perspective, exactly. but the lives of people, middle-class people, you know, you see, you see, you see footage of people getting off the boat, mm -hmm. um, a boat and mm -hmm. like the streets of Port of Spain, like mm -hmm. poor people on the streets, vendors, but you don't see inside people's lives. No, and so recreating those images through dramatization yes. and then interweaving it with, you know, footage that contextualized it mm -hmm. and doing it in a way that like works so that you feel like you're actually there. Yes. That is the art of it. Like, again, p put it, um, I really had to make it up. How did they dance? Because I've heard my, my mother say, you know, that her parents love to dance. And um, just the other day, she was kind of showing me and I was like, oh, like, a year yeah. after finishing, you know, five years after shooting that scene, we were like, oh, mm -hmm. we had choreographers and think, well, how did they dance in 1927? How did people, brown middle-class people in Trinidad dance, dance in 1927 when they had a little house fet, you know? Was it derivative of the of Harlem in the nine, you know, at the time, the Black Renaissance? So was it more indigenous? What mm -hmm. instruments they used? Turns out they used piano. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, or they might, you know, like what kind of percussion. I really had to make it up and p patch it in. And in some cases you get it right, some cases you don't, and you discover as you go along. But in a lot of cases, as I said, 
um, so it's an it's a combination of dramatization yes. where we re create re you know make, make it, it up, yes. imagine yes. the the what it would have been like in the absence of any documentation and then re Windrush Time Capsule and African Tales from the Hip. Two plays, one astounding moment in time. October the 24th to October the 27th. Get your tickets early on decolonizingthearchive.com. So, you directed it as well. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, when you were directing Nikolai, Nikolai how was that in regards to Nikolai having to... I know he mentioned some of his background and, you know, you know, going back to his granddad or father, I think it was. Grandfather. Grandfather. Yeah, yeah. But how did you juxtapose that information <coughs> in, 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 in getting your actors to embody that? How did you, as a director, how did you... What was one of your, um, how would I say, methodologies in, 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 in carrying that over? Well, my basic premise is that there's absolutely no difference between the human beings who lived then and us, mm-hmm. you know? And that, um, first of all, to make it relatable, the audience has to believe that this is a person just like us now. Agreed. But I don't think like that. I think they are just like us. The only difference is that, you know, they lived in a black and white world. <laughs> Not literally, yes, but yes. or they, you know, they, there were certain conditions in their lives that were different. <coughs> that led them to make different kinds of decisions in the moment, or they sounded a little different because their education was a little different. Or, you know, what? so what was it like to be you, your spirit, essentially? Mm-hmm. You know, imagine being born in 1917, um, mm-hmm. and this is what it's like. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what the environment is like. This is who your father is. This is who your mother is. Mm-hmm. These are your siblings. This is where you're living. These are conditions of your life. This is these are the choices that you have in front of you. Imagine that, and then you know, then really just be from that place, you know. So when you were researching Uri Cross and finding out things about his life, uh, what stood out to you in terms of his identity? Because there's like moments in the film where. Like he's come from one place, but then he kind of had to decide for himself who he is and who he wants to be. Uh, I think it's uh, the drive to be free. You know, everybody wants to be free. I think that's it. I think that's why right at the beginning of the film, Sheila Jane says to him, um, you know, 1917, that was the, the, what was it? The first world war? The Russian Revolution Revolution. was in 1917 and um, Alex says that's the year I was born and he says then you were born for freedom because I think as a spirit of of freedom again to go back to this idea that that we who were born after independence are the born free of our generation there were kinds of limitations that we didn't have somebody born in 1917 would have been experiencing somebody born 100 years later would have been an enslaved person mm. but they would have still been yearning for freedom pushing for it wanting it every minute searching for it fighting for it reaching for it and I guess that's the thing like what do you do when there are all these limitations in front of you created how do you maneuver how do you get out of it and I feel like that is what you feel with um, this character 
there's a kind of restlessness, a kind of sense of movement, a, a kind of moving forward all the time and, you know, negotiating obstacles relentlessly by any means necessary, which I identify with also because as a woman, as a black woman, mm. there's always these obstacles in front of me. Oh, you can't be a director. Mm. You don't look like a director. Are you a director? What do you do? Um, <laughs> is this your first film? <laughs> wow. Yeah, constantly. I can just imagine. Yeah. And You've brought a very good point to the forefront in regards to um, Alric Cross. Um, when I watched the film, I did find that I found his life a bit divisive, in a sense. Because here it is, in one sentiment, World War II hero veteran. And then in another sense, um, opposing or not not opposing colonial indoctrination. How did you, and I, this is a question I'm putting to the two of you. Okay. How did you negotiate with that persona, the hero versus colonial indoctrination versus kind of liking colonial, some of you know the colonial stances, but yet not, because it's a because it's a bit divisive. Did you not, you know, the both of you? I'm putting that question out too. Yeah. Uh, it's real. You know, we grew up it's in real. a colonial society, therefore we in, embody and believe all kinds of rubbish. You know, starting with white people are better than us. So I need to get a white woman and have light-skinned children. You know, a lot of black men have that, uh, not even thought, it's just an instinct. Instinct. Um, or, you know, you really believe British education is superior. You really believe light-skinned people are better than dark-skinned people. You know, you actually believe that because that's what you were taught. That's what you're being, you know, indoctrinated with every second of the day. You have to decolonize your mind. Nice. You have to, you know, none but ourselves can do it. You know, so that's a process. And I don't know about you, but every all of us have been through it because yes. we're born into a world where there are all these assumptions and we have to... That is a narrative that we... Uh, that is a story. That's a journey. That's a... That's a arc. That's a hero's arc. That's a character arc. So as a storyteller also, I'm looking for where does the character change and grow? Where does he start and where does he get to? And so for me, Fantastic. he started... Fantastic. <coughs> Sorry. That's okay. He started in as a, as a typical colonial. He says we were trapped in this, you know, being these brown middle-class people, not white, not black, sandwiched in between, having to, you know, walk this fine line in order for our own survival, you know, look as white as possible, be as white as possible, you know, in, for our own survival and getting nowhere. And I said that right at the top. And you know what? That's my story. Because as a red-skinned person, we call them red, light-skinned, you know. Red person. gone off again. <laughs> It's red. No, it's light skin. Yeah, yeah we call it red. As a as a light skin person, that um, dilemma was very much part of my own upbringing. That we were favored, you know, supposedly middle class um, favored we better than black people, but we were never ever ever going to be white people and we were kind of lost in the middle you know because we didn't have access we weren't allowed to have access to black culture which is our culture but at the same time we couldn't go anywhere that white people were so <clears throat> so we had our own little culture in the middle 
stuck in limbo. And we were the gatekeepers. So we were the the bureaucrats who kept people, black people out. We were the kind of, you know, local arm of local government at the lowest level, that kind of thing. Never the bank manager. Always the teller and this and that. You know what I mean? Kind of speaks <laughs> to Fanon's theory, isn't it? You know, you have that whole thing with the the uh, wretched of the earth and it's another story but yes and it's said. deadly it's yes. a deadly yes. um um trap yes because okay. you're really stuck and um so for somebody like that born like that who, who thinks if i work hard enough i'm gonna be accepted and successful white people are gonna like me um and i'm actually white i'm actually european yes. that's what i am because yeah. that's what they believe that's what they, they think british citizens yes. you know then what is what happens what's the process of ending up you know being at the forefront of teaching constitutional law in dar es salaam in 1969 mm. when which was dar es salaam was the center of revolutionary mm -hmm. activity yes. in africa at the time you know what is that journey mm. and one of my favorite parts actually is when he actually is you know talking to the um asante himi yes. and he says don't you people want to grow you know <laughs> What's the in, matter with in you? the most condescending tone. Yeah. And the chief was like, ah. <laughs> I was about to execute him. <laughs> it's like as if you said to the queen that, right? And she'd be like, off with his freaking head. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You're not going to respond? Oh, what is the question again? Sorry. <laughs> that whole divisive, um, that divisive. I wanted to explore that. Persona. Because one minute you're a war hero, right, and then the next minute um, you're no longer supporting colonization, but then at the next minute again you're supporting colonial ideas. So he had a very divisive type of persona. So respond well, to that. Well, I think it's, um, I think that comes from the time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my grandfather was kind of like that, which is funny. I studied him kind of to understand how work I've been. But he was kind of like that. Very colonial, but at the same time, he would argue on and on and on about, you know, there's a war coming, especially in his last days before he died. He said, you know, there's a war coming and it's going to be black versus white, mm -hmm. you know? And then he'd switch it up and say, Muslims versus Christians. <laughs> but it was it was which was really his his thing about it was the black really the black races against the white race mm -hmm. and then he would switch up again and become very colonial once mm -hmm. more you know yeah. where where you must wear a man must have five suits you know one must be tweed and one must be this and you know very colonial yeah thinking yeah. i think it's just the brainwashing of the time mm -hmm. um in the same way that now a lot of us in the global West would be brainwashed more by American thought, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? It's the brainwashing of the time. And you cannot help but give in to the superimposition of cultures upon you, having grown up with those cultures as being your norm. Mm -hmm. um, considering that Trinidad was a colony. Yes. Therefore, it wasn't. it's not necessarily that it had its own culture so much. Mm -hmm. Even today, we still struggle with yes. identities Identity. and whatnot because mm -hmm. of the amount of ethnicities that exist here. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I think, yeah, it was just a, a product of the time and, and um, you know, him, him starting off colonial, but then realizing that, well, the racism I'm dealing with here is, you know, it's not something I want to deal with. I go live in Africa, but then I don't know if it's also that he probably felt like, well, there are some good things about the British culture or, you know, things that they think or whatever the case yes. might be. Um, I don't know. I know, I know for, for me, going through the journey, I know I was experiencing my own culture shocks, you know, trying to come to terms with being in a strange new space and normalizing it for yourself and all that. So yeah. I, I think it might just be linked to that. Can I say something? Yeah. I, I thank you for that question because um, nobody's asked me that question before, but it was very deliberate. It was a very deliberate kind of um, decolonizing process, like you say, the product of the time. And um, me trying also to understand Ulrich, his motivations. I remember saying to him, by the time I got to start making the film, Ulrich was very advanced in age. And I couldn't understand how a guy who was so, you know, he was a very, very anglicized person. All his choices, he was in the war, you know. Um, he wanted to be a lawyer, you know. How he ended up going and being part of the, um, you know, the African movement. And so I asked him, I said, how, how did you get to Ghana, you know? And he said, on a plane. I was like, okay, that's not going to be helpful at all, right? Very stoic. <laughs> no, he, no he, matter he, of fact. Just, you know, he, he was 96 mm -hmm. and he was like, on a plane. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, motivation is not something I'm getting from you right for my character so my job as a t storyteller is to slice the character open and reveal motivation and that whole <clears throat> like how did is is at the center of the story you know how did he become how did but part of it is growing up but also the whole decolonizing the narrative story is right at the center and i was very um deliberate about it Fantastic. Two more questions. So you've got one and I've got a last one. Okay. So um you've another <laughs> you already asked. Them. Yeah, and you've already asked. Them. Um my last question to you, Francis, would be I noted your style in terms of getting this film marketed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've 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 chosen it as a style, if it's an organic thing or if it was um, if it was, um, what you call it, it was actually thought about, but I thought it was brilliant. I would say, well, from what I've noted, is that this sustainable approach to not only creating film, but for making the film continue and lasting, and a sustainable approach by collaborating. And I thought, wow, if that is not a sentiment in every sense of the word, of not only what the film is, but then how then to move as a people. I don't know what is. And I was just so inspired by that. So I just wanted to ask if that was deliberate. <laughs> what is it? Like, I'm, I'm not commenting here, but there's something about people thinking that what I do is not deliberate. Like, I don't, I didn't think about it or something. Um, of course I thought about it. <laughs> of course it's deliberate. Oh no, I just did it organically. Um, 
Uh, okay, a couple things. Quickly. Um, the machinery of the, of the film industry is totally dominated by a white colonial um, or slash imperial male, um, male um, uh, infrastructure, yes. right? To this day, we have no effective black distribution uh, networks anywhere in the world, right? Um, that could tell that kind of story or any, or Caribbean stories, which are very hybrid, right? So 20 years ago, I started Caribbean Tales in order to create an infrastructure. I worked at the BBC for 15 years. I wanted to create an infrastructure that would be like the BBC, create, uh, produce, market, distribute yes. and sell, make viable our content for us, by us, about us. So that's how deliberate was. I worked with, um, I worked with um, cultural industries um, expert Keith Nurse and a lot of business people around the region in order to come up with a business plan for how to do this. And what struck me was always the kind of European models that they were bringing to bear in a lot of cases, but you know, with certain people like Keith, um, he definitely had a Caribbean um, education born out of Lloyd Best's, who is a Caribbean uh, political political philosopher in Trinidad, um, Lloyd Best thinking. Um, and f at the center of it, um, you can also say that Ava DuVernay, yes. there are a number of us who, who are very deliberate in the way that yes. we do that. When Ava started her um, array, um, platform, platform and she was very deliberate I was like that's what I do mm -hmm. which is you work with communities you work with um, when, and communities is a derogatory term it, it doesn't give you the um, the actual impact of what these influencers and people who have access to networks our networks actually do and are they are leaders yes and um, so if you work with the leaders the chiefs yes. in our in our in our cultures yes. to get the story out to communities that is the only and you give them also a share of the profits you sh you, you make it a, a profit share then then that is the way the only way that you can get black films out to black audiences. Yes. So I've had a festival now and a distribution company yes. in Canada for 20, 15 years, right? 15 years, I've been running a festival, 10 years, a distribution company. And so over that time, starting from empty cinemas, I, we, you know, through experience, developed a model, which is really um, the, based on that, that concept. And coming to England, here, which is the first time that I stepped outside of, Can well, no, I, I also worked in, in Barbados, um, did some work in New York as well, but coming here with a film that I really wanted to get to people, yes. you know, um, it was, it was the first time that I, that I thought, okay, let me see how to do this now. Um, and I made it my business to get to know and to connect with, you know, influencers in every community. Yes and to build relationships with them that were, you know, I hoped and want to, to be of yes. mutual benefit. Yes. You know, it's, you, you say, you know, I feel like I go to the chief that's in right. the village that's and I right. say, mm -hmm. respect. Yes, that's very cool and odd. What do you want from me? me? What can I give you? Yes. That's where you start. What yes. can I yes. give you? And based on that, we can build a relationship that is of mutual benefit. 
because and what I want is also something they want because it, in a lot of cases they would also like the stories yes. to get out you know yes. if you find the right people and people would say well you can't come to England and work with everybody we don't do that here because we have internecine struggle and warfare between <laughs> tribes <laughs> and you know black all kinds of well you've just debunked that myth haven't you nonsense people would say you've just debunked and I would it. be like but that's what I do and I'm gonna give it a go and so that is um, that's what we've done and and it's it's very satisfying it's very satisfying I think it's also like having a family and yes. having 50 children mm. and trying to figure out how each one is going to get fed is going to get fed and mm. nourished and grow to into mm -hmm. their potential um all the while saving the cause more in the long <laughs> maintaining the, the, the village yeah wow well i would definitely like to say francis and solomon and nikolai salcedo it was indeed a pleasure and honor to have you here um, at Decolonizing the Archive, resident here at BCA doing groundings. Um, if nothing else, I'd like to say that you are definitely a true example of resilience yes. and a success story. And I know I'm being very serious. I'm not saying it to, 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 I am absolutely inspired. Sam, I know you are, you're just I'm beaving Sam's locks. So like, oh. hour I've been like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus. It's funny, somebody asked me in an interview the other night, um, and what was it like working with Francis Han? And I was like, Francis Han is a general. <laughs> no, because she's very, she's very like a, a taskmaster, but she's like for the cause and believes so That's hard. Right. You know? So yeah. Yeah, yeah, she is inspiring. It's beautiful. Inspiring. That's beautiful. You have to be militant with it. So mm -hmm. it gets the message across. <laughs> fantastic militants it's all about that it's all about that well thank you so much for coming in and taking your time and i know i envision that your film will be a success in the uk i know it is already everyone's talking about it um you've kind of brought up a lot of resurgence in terms of topics that were either not addressed and are now being addressed and readdressing topics that were addressed but in a completely different way so thank you again, Francis and Solomon, and we'll be hearing more from you. You're listening to DTA Groundings. Follow us on www.decolonizingthearchive. See you soon.